It's not the job of the least among us to turn the tide. It's the job of those of us who have position and privilege and resource to say, this is not okay. What can I do differently? How can I engage differently? Because it's my job now as a bigger person to be the mentor for my children, for my students, for anybody in the community, right? How can I show up differently to build a connection, even if it's just for a moment at the grocery store or when I called for my daughter's test results on the COVID line? How can I bring a smile to someone else or offer the safety or the space to just be able to be wherever you're at? This is Living As You. Here's your host, P.Q. Man, I am so pumped right now. And you know why I am so fired up? Because today on Living As You, we bring to you a neuroscientist and one of my lifelong mentors, Dr. Nancy Michael a neurobiological researcher on child resiliency and current professor at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Michael is transforming local communities through the implementation of neuroscience approaches to help others understand and ultimately reduce the impact of stress on our brains and our physical bodies. A longtime expert on neural networks the essence of vulnerability and the importance of addressing our mental health. Dr. Michael is the ultimate professional when it comes to our human brains. This is going to be awesome. Get ready. Hey, good to see you. Hey, good to see you too. How have you, how have you been the last two weeks since we sat down? Doing okay. Really glad that the, to, right? Like we are, we are in the home stretch and I am really grateful about that. Just, just a couple of weeks, just a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Three more weeks of classes. And at this point for, for the classes, like we're, we're in the home stretch, right? All of the, I don't want to say all of the intensity, but my, my classes tend to be much more kind of summative project driven and not summative assessment, like summative exam driven. And so I hope that that, it's certainly less stressful for me. I hope that that translates into less stress for the students as well, because we should have done all of our learning already, right? And we should be developing a project that demonstrates our learning instead of like worrying about doing the learning. That's the goal. I love that. I think that's, as a, as a student, that's the, one of the hardest things about being in school, the recall versus recognition. Yeah. The recognition is much easier, but I think that's the way to learn. So fantastic. Yeah. So Dr. Michael, I just want to begin with a single question. What brought you to neuroscience? <laughs> that's, a, that's a long answer. I don't know how much time we have. What brought me to neuroscience? Um, I think the, the short answer of that is that I would just, right, like, like people, right? How, how different people can end up, right? People that seemingly have very similar backgrounds, very similar experiences, same hometown, same parental education, and even within like my own family. I have two siblings, one older, one younger, and the three of us could not be more different. And so, so it really was, it was just questions, questions about people and questions about experience and how experience can change people, right? Because we don't, when I was growing up, there was still a lot of nature versus nurture debate. And especially right now, 
seeing the pandemic and everything unfolding through the lens of neuroscience, paint me a picture of kind of what your mind has been like through that lens of neuroscience as you've witnessed the pandemic unfold these last several months. Yeah. So initially, right. It's, so we, you and I have talked about, and you know, as, as a, as a faculty member at Notre Dame, I enjoy, well, while not a Catholic, right. I use language of Catholic social tradition quite a bit um, because I think I like, I like, I like how it calls us to engage with the world and with each other. So, so at the beginning of the pandemic, there's this Catholic social tradition or CST principle called of the common good. So that was, that was really where my mind was at at the beginning. Like, okay, that's fine. Like we'll, we'll do this lockdown. We'll get this under control. Right. Like we, and we do this for each other. We do this to demonstrate care for our community. We do this to, to protect, you know, those who are more vulnerable or on the margins that I, that I have the ability to, to make the changes in my life. So even if it's inconvenient and even if it's dumb or even if I don't, all of these things, it doesn't matter because this is the way that I show care for the common good. This is the way that I show care for my community. And we still do all of the things, but I think from a neuroscience perspective, right? So there's the epidemiological control of spread and the policies that, that are behind that. But from a neuroscience perspective, a lot of the epidemiological policies are, are kind of contrary to health of nervous system function, specifically around the social behavior and attachment behavior. And so I think at this point in time, right, going through the recognition that this was not just for a couple of weeks, that this was going to be for, you know, a year, year and a half, some people say two years of this extended kind of social deprivation, that that, that is greatly concerning and I think needs to be brought much more to the forefront in conversations around community health and community well-being. And it's not to say, right, like, it's just to say that it's complicated, right? That, it, that community health is a multifaceted picture, right? We, we, we can't just look at one aspect of community health. And so, so how do we continue to meet the demands of controlling from an epidemiological perspective, meet the demands of controlling a virus that's, right, again, in terms of common good, that, right, like my, I am in my 40s, I am healthy, I am not, I don't have any pre-existing conditions, right? And so it's really easy for me to be like, it's fine, I'm going to be fine, I can get this. But in terms of common good, and it's the most vulnerable in our populations that are the most at risk, and so it becomes my responsibility to do the stuff to care for. But then we still have this massive distance between neurobiological expectations of attachment and sociality because we can't do those things, right? And I think I, probably everybody has had an experience of missing people, right? And like, even if you have a distanced gathering, there's this such this strong urge and desire to be close to people, right? Where like, you might do like a distance elbow bump instead of being able to give a hug, but kind of in those substitute experiences, there's also kind of a synaptic depression because there's this expectation of being able to be close in physical proximity and community. And then those expectations based on previous learning, right, aren't met. So there's kind of this chronic wave of, say, nervous system depression, that's a little bit probably always present because attachment and social behavior is so critically important for overall mental health and well-being. And we're not able to meet those kind of neurobiological needs and neurobiological expectations at large, right? Within family groups, we might be able to do that. But I think one of the things, another concern from a neuroscience point of view is that, that we definitely know that drug overdoses are significantly higher than they were a year ago, um, domestic violence is up. Deaths as a result of domestic violence are up. 
right? And this doesn't even touch on educational inequities, right? In terms of learning lags that will become permanent learning gaps, right? And those are, those are also unequally distributed where, where more vulnerable populations always, always get hit the hardest, right? And so I have I just, I have, I have a lot of trouble reconciling all of those things in terms of cost and common good. Can you dive into the idea of the neural network synapses and what happens when we connect with other people? I think a lot of people who don't have a neuroscience perspective know, hey, it's good to see people's faces. It's good to interact. It's good to talk to others. But I think when you hear about what actually goes on in the brain, at least this was my perspective being a student of yours and studying neuroscience for four years, it changes your whole idea of how you see the world. And you're like, I need to see people. One of the hardest things for me during this pandemic, but I miss seeing people's faces. I miss giving people fist bumps. I miss giving people bro hugs or regular hugs. And I'm like, when can we get back and just connect in that manner? Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. And so I think, I think it's really easy to, to forget that humans, right, we've been a long, around for a long time, but the way that synapses are, are the connections in the brain that create the way that we see the world ultimately, right? Um, that they're different between every single individual. And right, so I mentioned this nature versus nurture, right? Like we know that it's, that it's this hybrid of the two. A colleague of mine said at one point, asking somebody to separate nature versus nurture is like ask, handing somebody a baked cake and asking them to separate the eggs and the flour. It's just simply not possible to do that, right? And it's this constant exchange between our physiology and our environments from before the time that we're born, right? From a short game perspective, we see the world through our own eyes and our own experiences. We are socialized by family, community, school, but it's still very much in terms of the experiences that drive the, the synaptic connections and the architecture in our brain that that's very much built on social forces that are in place before we're here, but, but that feeds into them our experiences and how we perceive and how we engage. All right, so that's the individual perspective. A long game perspective, though, is that humans have been around for a really, really long time. And for, you know, human and mammal survival in general, right? So mammals across species are typically born reasonably neurobiologically immature, uh, different mammals, right? Different stages of development for sure. But a very unique thing about mammals is that we're really, really dependent on a primary caretaker for an extended period of time. And so with that dependence, um, there's, a, there's a neurotransmitter system called oxytocin. Oxytocin gets a lot of popular press as being like the cuddle hormone or the love, you know, like, uh, but oxytocin from a central perspective in terms of the way that it functions at the level of the synapse or at the level of those individual neural connections in the brain, from what we understand is the neurobiological basis of things like trust and altruism and sense of belonging, community, this idea of, of agency, right? Like that we have control or an internal locus of control. Those types of things that again, and unfortunately, it's probably a little thing for later, right? Internal locus of control is so important for our sense of well-being and our sense of belonging, right? That we are an agent in our own lifetimes. And again, unfortunately, right, we're born into social systems and in many social systems, because when we talk about something like internal locus of control, like maybe it might, that might exist at a distance from the social narrative and values with which we were raised. Like, why do you have to say bro hug? Why can't you give somebody a hug? It's those kinds of things, right? Because culturally, at least in the United States, we don't really value emotion, right? We, look at, we generally look at vulnerability as kind of a weakness 
So going back to oxytocin, as mammals and being born with these immature nervous systems, our sense of security and safety in the world arises out of constant and consistent and caring and attentive care. And that's driven by oxytocin. So oxytocin released in the developing nervous system is kind of the foundational aspect of safety. And oxytocin has this modulatory effect over another, another neurotransmitter system called dopamine. And dopamine, again, gets a lot of popular press in the drug literature as the reward, uh, but really it's behavioral reinforcement. And so when dopamine is released in this bulk signal based on something positive or, or that gets reinforced in our environment, we get this kind of bulk dump of dopamine, and that's a neurobiological signal to say, do that again. So we've got these two neurotransmitter systems. So something like water or food or sex, those are primary reinforcers. Those by themselves drive the release of dopamine. Well, oxytocin from in a neurobiologic, from a brain connection standpoint, oxytocin is positioned in a way that it can regulate the release of dopamine. So it has direct projections to different parts of different types of dopamine cells that will drive the release of dopamine um, to reinforce the social behavior and the social connection. Another thing that we don't think about from a long game perspective in terms of human behavior is that the nervous system expects certain experiences from the environment. So the nervous system is wired in a way, has evolved in a way that it expects three-dimensional complexity. The nervous system expects complex social environments and the nervous system expects deep connection to other humans, right? This social, this deep social connection. And so, so in, the, in the context then of the current state, we're all walking around with these nervous systems that expect to be able to do these things that expect, like when we see another human, you mentioned you miss seeing faces. Oh my gosh. So you can tell a lot of ways about the, how important a sense is, taste, touch, sound, sight, whatever, by how much neural real estate is devoted to uncoding or decoding that sense. We have a whole swath of cortex, like one of those huge bumps, completely devoted to decoding facial expression. So even in terms of like understanding, right? So, so much of, of human history has been transmitted by oral narrative. And so when we literally mask a huge part of the face that communicates the meaning behind the story, that, that, that again, like it's, it's a much, um, probably not as bad as like not having somebody to give you a hug regularly, but you know what I mean? Like the nervous system function bases itself on difference. Like what's the expectation? What's the experience? And the difference, the magnitude of that difference kind of drives learning at a cellular level. And so we all walk around like, why is it so hard to not be able to give somebody a hug? Well, it's because when you, especially if you have a pre-existing relationship with somebody, your nervous system kind of gets all jazzed up at the opportunity to be able to see them, but then you can't, or you can, but you're six feet away. When, when the expectation of the nervous system is that we should be able to be close, when we should be able to embrace, we should be able to like laugh. And so because there's physical distance, it also becomes a social distance as well. And that social distance, I think, creates this we all walk, we all feel tired, right? There's this social distance creates this environment in which there's persistent vigilance in inhibiting behavior, which can lead to things like depression and anxiety, right? Like, like we all, we all feel it. We all notice the presence there. And we all know it's like, even on campus this semester, like it's been a really hard semester, right? Everybody I think is so glad for the opportunity to be able to have classes in person 
because that's another thing we noticed. There's a huge difference between learning in person and learning online. Giant. Giants. And that is driven by social circuitry, right? And behavioral synchrony driven by kind of oxytocin and serotonin, how these neuromodulators synchronize our brains in large group. That's coordinated group behavior driven by nervous system function, which we can feel when we're in a shared classroom space, but we miss it when we're doing stuff online. So we're all glad to be there, but it's still exhausting because social distancing, this uncertainty of all of the things that 2020 has had to offer, the uncertainty that that injects into the activities of daily living, to manage all of that just requires constant vigilance. And that is exhausting. Wow. (laughs) So much to unpack there. You're amazing. To me, even after four years of studying this and hearing you talk about it, it's just remarkable that all these neurobiological changes and physiological or things are, are changing without us or most people on this earth having the words to describe what is happening. People can say, man, I'm missing my friends or I feel really tired or I feel really down. But what you're saying is that's because all of these neurobiological changes are happening and as I, as I walk around and I'm outside or walking on some trails near our, our house, and I see everyone with a mask. And I understand why we have these masks on. Part of me from this neuroscience perspective is like, in the fusiform face area, the, the cortex, the region you were talking about that uh, takes in, basically synthesizes people's faces and, and where we, we process others' faces. Like he's pretty upset. He's bummed because he's not getting enough time yep. to see people's faces. Yep. And I think this ties in to something I really would love to unpack with you. The idea of Abraham Maslow's and his hierarchy of needs. Again, just to recap that, you got the physiological needs, the food, the water kind of at the very bottom. You got your safety, security. Uh, you got that sense of connection, love, and belonging is the third tier. We get into the fourth with kind of the esteem. And then finally at the very top, is a chance to achieve self-actualization. And in recent conversations that we've had, I think it's been pretty remarkable how you've touched upon the fact that you think this pyramid that has been so regarded as, oh, that, that's the way we life happens. That's the way our human brains kind of work in a sense. You think there has to be a little bit of restructuring in terms of that connection. Can you touch upon that? Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy, I think from from an individual agency perspective, we feel helpless when the demands on agency exceed the resources that we have. From that perspective, I think that there's a lot of truth too. So like if we don't have enough food and we're walking around hungry all the time, right? Like it's really hard to do this self-actualization stuff. And we can go into, probably not today, but the differences, right? In terms of stress neural circuitry and how that shifts brain function to shift it to more subcortical limbic and stress circuitry and away from the cortical circuitry and the frontal circuitry that allows for processes like self-actualization. That requires executive, a lot of executive function, right? And when we're highly stressed, we don't, right? The brain, the way that the brain works shifts in such a way that we're not able to, that prefrontal cortex and executive function, that capacity is really kind of shut off, diminished. So we all might've noticed in the last couple of months, it just feels harder. We might have more trouble with our memory. We might have a harder time learning things. Things that we used to be able to do, no problem, just feel harder. And that just has to do, again, with this kind of top-down vigilance. We're always trying to regulate all of this bottom-up emotion and stress, right? And that becomes taxing. And the stress itself diminishes the the capacity of those top-down circuits to engage effectively. 
All right, so that's where we're starting. But I think one of the things, the more that I've learned about neuroscience, the more that I've learned about developmental neuroscience, the more that I've learned about the importance of attachment and security and how oxytocin and dopamine, and I'm learning more about serotonin. I still know very little about serotonin in the grand scheme of people that know about serotonin. Um, But how these early attachment and early attachment and continued attachment, how attachment really is from a mammalian survival standpoint, it's not, so the world has never been a safe place ever. The neurobiological expectation is that someone bigger, stronger, more skilled, that somebody bigger than me, who knows more than me, who has more resources than I do, will always look after me and protect me. That is the neurobiological expectation. And so it's not that the world was ever safe, but it's that somebody cared enough about me. And out of that relationship, that is actually what develops my internal sense of safety, my internal locus of control. And so the world, again, it's not that we solve all of these problems, but if I can show up for you, right? So, so the revision that I would offer is that attachment actually becomes the base of that pyramid because when I show up for you, and right? And again, we have to recognize social narratives and how social narratives play into this. I have to show up for you in a courageous and vulnerable way for us to feel connected to one another. I have to be consistent. I have to be caring. I have to help you and provide through my behavior then I am able to provide safety because I will look out for you if you are in danger. I will share, right? This is a really super atypical human thing. We share food with non-kin, right? We share food outside of family groups. So with me as somebody who has more, it is my responsibility to be present with you. So Castle's tradition is back to this idea, like this dignity and solidarity that is not reserved for a few. And if we have more, then it becomes our responsibility to offer ourselves to others because that is where internal safety arises from. When we have a sense of internal safety, that sense of internal safety is able to kind of bottom up, turn off stress responses. If our connection, if my ability to connect with you, to intervene from the outside, to respond in accordance with species expectant experiences of attachment, that creates a sense of belonging. Out of that sense of belonging arises our sense of security and safety. And if we feel safe and secure, even though the world itself might never be a safe place, I know that you've got my back, I've got your back, we're in this together, we're going to do this, and then we can problem solve together. We can get the food that we need because we're working together. We can get the shelter that we need because we're working together. And out of that increases my own internal agency and my own locus of control And through that, then I can reach, you know, I can achieve self-actualization. But in terms of stress system regulation, our ability to regulate our stress response is so, yes, absolutely driven by stimulus response reactions from our environment, but it's such a critical factor of being, learning how to regulate our stress response, being able to do that is driven by our safety with other humans, our sense of belonging, sense of community, sense of attachment, connection to other humans. Because in the absence of that, it doesn't actually matter how safe the environment is. It is such a foundational component of neurobiological expectation. We can have all the actual physical safety in the entire world. We can have all of the actual food in the entire world, but we would still end up depressed. We would still end up anxious. We would still end up seeking substances because we are missing ultimately the foundational piece 
of what creates safety and agency is, is other humans, right? And I think when I look at Maslow's hierarchy, right, there's, there's really nothing I can do, right, to help people based on Maslow, right? Again, but Maslow, I think, is based on like an individual, from an individual perspective in the absence of broader community. I think, there, you know, there's, there's a tremendous amount of accuracy there. But that's not the way that human, right? From what we under, we've learned a lot about neuro, neurosciences in the grand scheme of science, a very new field still, like it's a very, very young field. We've learned a tremendous amount. When was the hierarchy was published in the 50s, I think? I don't know. I'm just grabbing Sounds a number. Good. Whatever. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> but we've learned, we've learned a tremendous amount about the brain, brain function, brain behavior, brain behavior, environmental interactions in a pretty short amount of time, right? And so what I would offer is that, is that really what we understand from neuroscience at this point in time really speaks to the fact that brains have never developed separate from social systems and brains expect strong and robust support from their social systems. And so that's what I would offer as the revision is that with social system intervention, not necessarily the, the food and water, not that those aren't important pieces of stabilization, but it's really, it's really the solidarity with which we show up for one another. It's really the courage and the honesty and the, and the compassion with which we show up for one another that establishes that sense of connection and that so, sense of social safety, which is a critical factor in any kind of stress response regulation. Without it, we stay miserable despite all of the resources in the world. I think that is so powerful, what you just ended with right there. Because when I think back to my own life, I'd be interested to, maybe this is even another conversation, but to hear more about your personal experiences with this sense of connection and isolation. My journey at Notre Dame, as we've talked about, was all about, it was really rooted in finding my family away from my biological family. And freshman year, I remember walking around campus, especially when as it became darker outside, colder, October, November, uh, starting to meet, meet a couple people, but still trying to find my way and really thinking about the idea of, man, like, there's so many people here. But because I feel this sense of isolation and lack of connection, my, my needs are met. I'm getting food, I'm getting water, I'm exercising, I'm getting my sleep, but I still feel so empty and I feel still so, so broken. And the last several years, something I like to say about when people, the idea of home, the idea of where is your home? You get asked that a lot. And I think it's a fun question because normally individuals might say, hey, this is where my home is where I am living at the very moment or where I was born and raised. And to me, home is a place where I feel most connected to the people around me. It could be Angers, France, be South Bend, Indiana. Right now it's Portland, Oregon. I feel really connected here. But I love that idea that you just ended with in terms of connection, attachment is everything. And of course we need our needs met. But at the end of the day, if you focus on being connected to people on this earth, other human beings, no matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert, I think some pretty good things are going to happen. So thank you. Thank you for that. And, and by the way, 1943, you were, you were spot on with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We were, we were seven years off. That's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> Take me through, you've done an extraordinary amount of work with the idea of resilience, especially where that ties into connection and attachment. Can you detail a little of the work you've done and kind of your lens of resilience through a, through a neuroscience perspective? Yeah, um, I think this will probably also informs like why, why I think a revision is in order, right? Is that, is that, is that resilient, right? Like re resilience arises, not the absence of hardship, 
that's not what resilience is at all, right? Resilience is the hardship with the support. If we have all positive experiences, when we, right, because human existence has never been easy. It's never been safe. It's now you can never protect somebody from the stressors of like, if it's all positive, inevitably we reach hardship. And if we don't have the diversity of synapses, right? Like again, the diversity of experiences drives the generation of the diversity within a, a neural network, right? In terms of what connections are there, what skills can we draw on, how can we reorganize or activate in a different pattern the connections that exist in our brain? Because it's through that, so if all of our experiences are positive, we don't actually have the synapses, the connections in our brain that are required to generate the skills that are necessary to handle the adversity. If all of our connections are negative, we've had just a tremendous amount of adversity and stress, we don't have the connections in our brain to be able to live into this whole self-actualization piece. We don't have the executive function, we don't have the problem solving, we don't have the behavioral inhibition, because stress, if, we're, if a brain develops under chronic stress systems, again, it shifts the function to very reactive, very habitual, subcortical, outside of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and executive function kinds of spaces. So again, all adversity, no support, that is a very different brain. Resilience arises from the merger of the two. Life has never been easy and it will never be, and nor should it. Because if you think about what do we want from grown-up humans? What do we want their capacity to be? We should be strong and we should be vulnerable because those two things can coexist. We are able to be creative. We are able to be resilient. We are able to persist through. Those skills and those capacities have arisen out of the fact that life has always been hard. But we've always, up until very, very recently, right, and from, from a long game human perspective, we've always lived in, in community with one another. And in 2020 in the United States of America, community is void in so many places. We have our homes and we live in a neighborhood or we live in an apartment building or like we live near people, but we don't live with people anymore. And so vulnerabilities in the nervous system, I think, exist. One of the, one of the nicest, easiest ways to explain it, right? We have these kind of neurobiological expectations. And then we have the way that we live and we have our experiences. And vulnerability within the nervous system develops based on the distance between the expectation and the experience. So the greater the distance between the expectation and the experience, the more vulnerability is introduced into the system. Vulnerability for onset of depression, anger, substance abuse, heart disease, the distance. And again, the expectation, I want to be clear, is not one, it's not a utopia society in which all conflict and whatever, whatever has been eliminated. Hopefully we can do a better job listening to each other, right? That'd but be good. The, the expectation really is, is that we will get through this together, that you are not alone, that I am not alone, that I've got you. Doesn't matter. We got you. And from a, from a kid perspective, they're neurobiologically hardwired to look to people that are bigger than them for the examples of what that looks like. And we learn not because of what people say, but we learn through how we are treated and how we see people treat others. So there's also this great distance between so many value systems that we throw around and the way that we actually treat one another. 
especially people who we don't necessarily agree with. That is what our kids learn in terms of behaviors. What behaviors do we want our grownups to have? We have to set those examples. They don't, we don't just get to grow up to be 15 or 20 or 30 or 40. And just because we're a certain age, we have these certain skills or behavioral dispositions. Those are cultivated over a lifetime through this cyclical genes, environment experience, biology, environment experience, genes, through this constant cyclicity of this baked cake of nature and nurture existing very much at the same time. And you've said something, Dr. Michael, that I, I absolutely love, and I would love you to, to expand on a little. The idea that we all have a responsibility to do not for others, but to do with others. And in a time, even you just said that right there, I am with you. You are not alone. We are, I am here. I have your back. There is something so powerful in those words. There's something, obviously, neurobiological effects are happening. Oxytocin is being released. There's a ton of phenomenal things happening. But to me, the power of letting someone know that they're not alone, that I am with you in that shift in the perspective, oh, I'm going out in the world today to do things for someone versus with someone. I think that's pretty life-changing. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Mentioned earlier, right? The distance between a social narrative and the way that we that we actually that we actually behave and that we actually engage. Social media would have us believe that we're all like super connected and we're all like, look at the things that I'm doing, but how many of us can actually show up in person and just be vulnerable? There's this phenomenon that we are training immature nervous systems with the words that this is the way that we connect without ever showing them what it looks like to connect right again the brain can only understand through experience so then you kind of grow up and you have to reconcile but like this is connection right and then this internal sense of then why am i still so like you mentioned earlier why am i still so sad why do i still feel so isolated what because there's there's a distance there and so i think so much of this for me so much of this journey of neuroscience has also been a journey of self-discovery that there, there's actually a huge difference and people feel it too. There's a huge difference in saying, I got you, we're in this together, right? Hashtag in this together versus showing up in real life for someone who's in need, actually making the time to be there for somebody consistently, especially young people are really good at detecting insincerity. So how, how would we change our behavior? How would we live differently if every day we committed to earning the faith and trust of our children? Because that's right. They, they also learn then that is how distance is created for them as well. All of the promises that we make, like we're grownups and we have busy schedules and, and they don't understand the demands of work. They don't understand. But if you make a commitment to a child, especially if you are their primary caretaker or one of their people that they look to for support, and you don't follow through on that commitment, that is like this little heartbreak for them. We can understand it. We rationalize it. We understand because the same thing happened, right? You know, I understand. I remember when this happened to me. But do we remember how much it hurt? Kind of, kind of like the immediate pain. And over time, the cumulative effect is kind of a loss of faith in the reliance of people around us that say they're going to be there. But then also, I think an unfortunate effect or side effect is then as grown-ups, we adopt the narrative that this is just the way that it is. 
oh, I, I recognize this now, so I don't have to change my behavior. I can just do the same stuff so that then we can easily reconcile that the narrative doesn't ever have to change, that we can dismiss the hurt that it might have caused when we were younger, the walls that we might have had to put up about being honest about where we're at, right? And I think that this is epidemic on campus right now. So many students are not okay. What kind of spaces do we have to be honest about that? What kind of, it's not the job of the UCC to pick up the slack for all of the ways that we've failed in creating honest connections with one another. So again, back to that vulnerabilities idea, the distance between the expectation and the experience creates the vulnerabilities. This has been completely exacerbated by coronavirus pandemic because we're not, we're not allowed to access each other in so many of the ways that the nervous system expects. The hope in that is is that we all have the capacity to show up a little bit differently. That we all have the capacity to be like, you know what, this is dumb. No matter how many posts I make on Instagram or how many things that I like or how many things that people like on my wall or whatever it is, it doesn't actually make me feel any better. Why don't I not do that anymore? And why don't I look to the people that are actually here in front of me? Even a teeny, teeny, tiny social pod, you mentioned this idea that we can find home in the resilience literature. So resiliency and core protective factors for trauma-informed standards of care, right? Most of those come out of relationship with others. But in the resiliency literature as well, so there's the people in your lives in a very immediate way that matter, but there's also the sense of belonging. The sense of belonging not only right here and right now with the people that I'm with, but this sense of belonging that although I'm not physically with my parents, conjuring them in my mind's eye, remembering them, remembering the traditions, remembering drawing on their strength. So that is also why culture and faith and tradition and community, why all these much more, you know, 10,000 foot broader, they don't exist necessarily in real time all that often, but the depth of history in terms of where we come from, our traditions that we have, and, and the consistency, right? Because that's how synaptically they're created, is the consistency over time within our lifespan to hear the stories of people in our families of the generations that have come before. Every year at Thanksgiving, my mom and I make plum pudding because it's been, it's the recipe that's been in her family for 200 years. So it's those pieces as well that we can also draw strength. A friend of mine wrote a book and I'm, that I was looking for it earlier on the shelf. But again, this kind of this internal sense of in refugee communities, like what is the faith or what is the community or what is the hope that we can hold inside of us to get us through tremendous hardship? Because that is where resiliency comes from. And in times where we cannot be immediately together, to be able to draw on broader and deeper cultural and faith and community traditions to provide us that internal sense of strength, but showing up, I mean, showing up, but showing up in a way that's honest, showing in a way that would be like polyvagally informed, right? When I say that I'm with you, when I say that we're in this together, you know that because of the consistency and the willingness to give time and the willing, right? That there aren't any right answers in terms of where anybody should be right now but we have to be able to be honest about it. There's no right or wrong. It's okay to not be okay all, at all times. It's okay to not be okay right now, but it, we make it worse when we can't be honest about it. We make it worse when we can't be there to listen for somebody who is going through a hard time. We make it worse when we lie to ourselves about the fact that we're not okay. And we have the capacity to help ourselves and to help lots of other people. There's the vulnerability and the courage that's necessary. Because in the United States, we culturally do not value vulnerability. So how hard is it? In what position? Back to revision of hierarchy. 
it's not the job of the least among us to turn the tide. It's the job of those of us who have position and privilege and resource to say, this is not okay. What can I do differently? How can I engage differently? Because it's my job now as a bigger person to be the mentor for my children, my students, for anybody in the community, right? How can I show up differently to build a connection, even if it's just for a moment at the grocery store or when I called for my daughter's test results on the COVID line? How can I bring a smile to someone else or offer the safety or the space to just be able to be wherever you're at for a moment? Showing up, being there for other people. We hear that a lot. We see that a lot. We see the words, I'm with you, I'm here for you. But I think words can be quite empty if there's no action to back it up. I'll never forget last October, essentially a year almost to the day. It's a, a windy, kind of gray, cloudy day in South Bend before the snow hits. And I'm walking across campus. And what I was doing that week uh, was asking people, how are you doing mentally? Because for months, I'd ask people, hi, how are you doing? And as I would sit down with new people in the dining halls, I would have conversations with other people. There just was that theme of everyone would look around and in these vulnerable conversations that I was very privileged and lucky to have with even strangers, people I didn't even know, I just received the same message. I feel so alone. I'm going through all this right now, but I look around and I feel like I'm the only one going through it. And I'm getting hundreds of these same messages. And on that one day, as I'm going around asking people, how are you doing mentally? In the span of 20 minutes, I went up to six people, just, hey, I'm going into La Fun, walking to North Quad. And all of them stopped and said, I'm not doing well. This is what's going on, family issue, UCC. I'm counseling all this stuff. And I remember just stopping and I started to get angry. I think up until that point, um, there was that pattern recognition of, okay, something is wrong here. Because people are telling me the same story, but they look around and think they're the only ones with that story. So I remember walking to the dining hall, North Dining Hall, just looking up, looking up at the sky saying, I'm done. What, what can I do? As you said, what is my call to action to use what gives me life, to use my own privilege, my own education to help other people? That's where I started this podcast. I, I was no podcast guy. I'd never given a public speech, but I was like, you know what? I love conversation. I love being vulnerable with other people. I love helping others share their story and creating a space where maybe someone feels a little less alone. Let's try and like do this silly podcast thing and what happens. And like, here we are. It's a year and we've had some good conversation and it's been, it's been pretty amazing. And so for you during this time, there's a lot of people going through struggles. There's a lot of people going through some mental challenges, whether it's simply feeling alone, depression, feeling that lack of connection. To anyone struggling mentally who has heard this conversation and is really like me today, I felt so inspired by you and not only your work as a neuroscientist, but your ability to call things and see things as they are and to not hide anything. What would you say to anyone feeling alone right now if you knew they were listening? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say, well, you're not, you're not alone, like, but it's a trick, of, a trick of the brain. When we feel disconnected from other people, it's sometimes impossible or, or really, really hard that depression spurs depression because, because of the way that it shifts neural circuitry, right? The way that it shifts perception of others, the synapses that are becoming potentiated because of this constant, constant pressure. I would say that you're worth it, that I 
I, I know I went through, I went through about a decade of really, really hard experiences of mental hardship. So in junior high, high school and into college, some, some pretty, pretty severe depression and anxiety. And it points in that journey. I was talking to a student recently, right? Like I didn't ever imagine what I would do when I would grow up because I just didn't think that I was going to grow up. And for whatever reason, I didn't quit. Uh, attempts to quit were unsuccessful. And there, I now live a life that I could not have possibly fathomed. There is no way that 13-year-old me ever could have imagined the richness and the joy I experience every day. And I know from my own experiences how hard it can be to even like get up, much less shower and leave your dorm room or your apartment. But you're worth it. And there are people that love you fiercely, even when you can't see it. You're not burdening them to tell them what's going on because they know that something is going on and they're worried about you. But because we have so many barriers up about conversation and about asking what's really going on, or we feel so badly that we might be letting our parents down or letting the people down that care about us or that we're burdening them, burdening them or we're just not going to be fun to hang out with. We have to create spaces that are honest because we all need them. I sent out an email a couple of weeks ago to the students that are on campus right now. I wore a dumb pair of pants. They're awesome pants. They're loud, paisley designs with some bright color, right? Like crazy pants. So, and, and I was in a, such a great mood all day long because of this silly pair of pants. But it was because for most of my life, I never would have imagined that I would have the confidence or the capacity to wear those pants. I would have seen them on somebody else and I would have looked at that person and I would have been like, man, she's awesome. What is it like to be here? You know what I mean? But I never, that was never a version of myself that I ever would have imagined would ever exist. And I got these pants and I was excited to buy them. I got them and, you know, I ordered them through the mail and they showed up and I was like so excited that it was going to be warm enough the next day. To, I got to wear them the next day and I felt so good all day long. And it has nothing to do with the pants. It has to do with who I have been able to grow to become because of all of the hurt. There is no way that I would be who I am today in the absence of all of the nonsense and all of the hurt and all of the whatever. But it was, I also had been truly, truly blessed with the richness of love. And I think the hope and the power in understanding neuroscience and understanding nervous system attachment expectations is that we all can be that for somebody. We can all do a better job being that for somebody. And agree more. Thank you. Yeah. You Thank are you. you are that person to me. Four years and getting to learn from you all the time. And this is an incredible gift. Thank you so much, Patrick.